When it comes to the topic of persecution, you have a varying amount of opinions. Some will say they find persecution everywhere. Others will state they don't know where persecution even exists. And between those two extremes in the spectrum, all of us are found. Although some of us may veer more towards every time something difficult happens in life, we assume that's persecution. Whereas when others are going through hardships and what may very well be persecution uh, in other countries, uh, we tend to think, well, it's not so bad. And we need to be careful that our definition of persecution comes from the Word of God and not what we think persecution is. If you have your Bibles this morning, turn to Acts chapter 14. This will be the text we start, and then we're going to jump from here uh, to many other passages as we look at what persecution itself is. Acts 14, verses 1 through 7, as we continue in the book of Acts. Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews. That would be Paul and Barnabas. And so spoke that a great multitude, both of the Jews and of the Greeks, believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Therefore they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Jews, the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, into the surrounding region. And they were preaching the gospel there. So what we see clearly here is Paul and Barnabas arrive in Iconium to follow the same pattern they always have, which is go to the synagogue to teach the people. And what we see here is many believe the gospel message, both Jews and Greeks. Iconium itself is actually, uh, the definition is icon or image. That's what it means, and it was still predominantly Greek influence rather than Roman influence. There are many that came to saving faith in this city, which causes Paul and Barnabas to stay there a while. It says that they stayed a long time there. So they were ultimately about the work of discipleship. That's why discipleship is never something that terminates. That's something that has to keep going. We're not sure exactly how long long is, but it seems like they had to make quite the statement in the city because they started facing severe opposition to the point of getting death threats. Once Paul would have instituted himself were he on the other side of the equation. Remember, he actually persecuted the brethren this way. In the simplest terms, these men face persecution, and that is what we'll be specifically addressing this morning. There are many that claim persecution but if you compare that to Scripture, it is not going to line up. And we want to make sure that we're defining persecution the way Scripture defines persecution, not the way we would like to prefer to define persecution. So we're going to be looking at three things specifically this morning. Number one, persecution defined. Number two, persecution exemplified. And number three, persecution prepared. Persecution defined, persecution exemplified, and persecution prepared. So number one, persecution defined. It's absolutely important for any of us, when we do any study of Scripture, that we define the word that we want to define properly and in its context. There are many different standpoints from which persecution can be referred to, from a familial, political, socioeconomical standpoint. What we're specifically going to deal with is the Christian 
perspective of persecution, okay? I want to make sure that we zero in on exactly what we're talking about in religious setup. For our purpose today, the definition comes from a unique, uniquely religious standpoint and from the Holy Scriptures to those that face this from the Word of God. So many, when they see the word persecute in Scripture, they have different meanings of what that means compared to those around them. Today, we want to find the definition from the Word of God rather than reading in our own definition. The main word to use to define persecution is diako. What does it, that word actually mean? If you look it up in the Strong's Dictionary, here's what it says. To make, to run, or flee. Put to flight, drive away. To run swiftly in order to catch a person or thing. To run after. To press on. Figuratively of one who is in a race running swiftly to reach the goal. To pursue in a hostile manner. In any way, whatever, to harass, trouble, mistreat, molest one. That's what the word essentially means. Normally, this word is translated in the New Testament as persecute or follow after. In the simplest terms, persecution is a pursuit or mistreatment of someone in a hostile manner, in its simplest form. The pursuit or mistreatment of someone in a hostile manner. So here's how we're going to take a look at this, this word. Jesus starts off by promising persecution for his followers. We see this in Matthew chapter 5. Those of you that are following along in the reading program are memorizing these texts, these pas this passage right here in these verses. Matthew 5 verses 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely, for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, in regards to those who had faced persecution before the great tribulation, here's what the text in Luke says. Luke 21, verses 10 through 13. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great earthquakes in various places, and famines and pestilences, and there will be great fearful sightings and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake, but it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony." You see, there will be hostile pressure from religious communities and government officials, but it provides an opportunity to have a testimony for Christ. In John 15, Jesus makes this statement, verses 18 through 21. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. You getting the flow of how Scripture's setting this up? 
You see, we see in other texts of Scripture, Paul himself makes this statement. In 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. When people ask whether Christians are going to be persecuted, the question is not whether they will. It's to what extent. Paul promises that those that want to live godly will suffer persecution. So what can we extract from these verses that we've just read? Remember, the definition for persecution is a pursuit or mistreatment of someone in a hostile manner. Well, Jesus spells out for us, for righteousness' sake, for my sake, for my name's sake. And Paul says, all who desire to live godly. This clearly tells us that persecution must be something in regard to the faith, ultimately, in our lifestyle. This may come in different forms, which is where the debate itself is. And many in the church keep always fighting with one another whether something is persecution or not. We'll more clearly spell this out here in a little bit when we look at the examples of Scripture and persecution. So what can we say that persecution is not, okay? I think sometimes when you define a word, you want to know what it's not, okay? Let's, let's, let's look at a few things that it's definitely not, okay? It's not the consequence for neglect, okay? If you're simply neglecting responsibilities before others, when there's no conflict with God's word, that does not constitute persecution, let me explain what I mean by that. Forgetting to pay a bill, forgetting to pay your taxes, does not necessarily mean persecution. There are many arguments to be made regarding the Constitution in America. I understand that. And what its proper amount when it comes to taxation is. As some would like to say, taxation is theft, right? But the irony in our government is that we elect... It's a republic, by the way. We elect our rulers who then tell us how much we ought to pay. That's the irony in this whole thing. They represent us only to tell us what we should pay them. I don't know if you've ever thought through that. It's kind of interesting. What persecution is not is also the consequence for abuse. What do I mean by that? Christians may hold the certain standards when it comes to God's word, but abuse of others around them is not persecution when they get in trouble or caught. When people abuse the resources given to them and attempt to hide behind the veil of persecution, that is not the same thing. Abusive men in the church cannot hide behind verses that say my wife is to submit while they are absolutely degrading to their wife. Especially when they get in trouble for beating their wife. That's not persecution for the faith. False accusations do happen. But those need to be qualified with facts. What also is not a persecution, if you will, that goes on, is just having a difference of opinion with others. Difference of opinion does not constitute persecution automatically. If Starbucks decides to say happy holidays on their cups, that's not persecution against the Christian faith. Hate to break it to all of you that bought into that lie. If someone doesn't want to support your business because they like someone else's business, but you may be a Christian, you might want to make a better product. 
particularly if your faith has nothing to do with it. In fact, if someone is targeting your business specifically because of your faith, that may be a different matter. But last time I checked, Chick-fil-A is doing just fine. They haven't struggled much at all. Even with all the supposed persecution. Their product is pretty good. So now that we've looked at what persecution is not... Let's take a look at some examples of what persecution is in Scripture. Okay? Number two, persecution exemplified. Let's look at the Apostle Peter. Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. Now as they spoke to the people, the priest, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day. For it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Jump to Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. So when he had arrested him, he put him in the prison and delivered him to the four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Now let's take a look at Stephen. What happened to him? And Stephen, full of faith, this is, this is going to be, uh, I believe it's verse 8. I, don't, I missed the chapter here, I apologize. Chapter 6. And Stephen, full of faith... And power did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. Let's look at Saul's persecution of the church. In Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Now Saul was consenting to his death. That was the death of Stephen, by the way. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. I hope you're getting the sense of what persecution looks like in Scripture. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now let's transition to Saul's own persecution after he became a follower of Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 9, verses 20 through 23, immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues, 
that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem? And has come here for that purpose, that he might bring them bound to the chief priests. They thought Saul was still lying and was a fraud. The change was real. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Jump to Acts 13, verses 45 and 49 through 50. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy. And contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken by Paul. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them from their region. Acts 14, verses 1 through 7. Now it happened in Iconium, the text we just read, that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude, both of the Jews and of the Greeks, believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Therefore they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding region. And they were preaching the gospel there. We have not covered this text yet, but jump ahead to Acts 16, verses 16 through 24. Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and us, that would be Luke, and Silas, I believe later on, comes into the picture, and cried out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days, interrupting prayer meeting, if you will. But Paul, I love this, phrase right here. Greatly annoyed. Yes, that's in the Bible. For those of you that haven't read that yet, it's there. Turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. But when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. Notice how they switch the argument here. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. They were so dangerous. So, with all these texts we've read, and I know that that might be a little overwhelming for you to go through all these passages, but I think we can conclude some things here, right? We can deduce some things from this. 
First of all, the vast majority of times persecution is mentioned, it's in connection with the gospel itself. What do I mean by that? Christ being preached, they preached Jesus, they preached Christ, they preached the gospel. Gospel. The majority is in reference to the preaching of the gospel. When we get harshly mistreated because we share the gospel with others, that follows, falls under the category of persecution. But as with any situation, context is necessary. If you're screaming at the top of your lungs at people driving by and you get arrested, don't claim persecution, please. Context is important. Paul didn't go in there screaming at everybody in the temple. If you're going to make a public statement about Christ and make him known and people oppose that to the point of hostility, that's persecution, biblically speaking. Particularly if you want to, they want to shut that down. You see, persecution many times comes from a simple identification with being a follower of Christ. That's also something else we see here in these texts. Herod wanted to harass some from the church. That's what the text says. Saul made havoc of the church, entering every house, committing them to prison. Saul, if he found any who were of the way, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Mere identification with Christ was a point of persecution for the early church. In fact, one of the scariest forms of persecution is from those, Scripture says, that think they're pleasing God. In fact, in John 16, verses 1 through 3, and I like the way the New Living Translation puts it here. I have told you these things so that you won't abandon your faith, for you will be expelled from the synagogues. And the time is coming when those who kill you will think they are doing a holy service for God. This is because they have never known the Father or me. It should come as no shock to many of us in the church that so-called progressive Christianity would be absolutely thrilled to see pastors locked away that teach the morals of Scripture. And they haven't bought into the progressive ideology of the day. They'd be so glad to turn their fellow brother or sister in for their bigoted views. In fact, they'll be the ones to state that they deserve what they got for speaking against the moral code of society and not proudly accepting sinful practices the church should be ashamed of and outright reject. In fact, one of their, their mottos would be, God is love, and the most loving thing I could do is get rid of these bigots. So we've looked at the examples of persecution. Let's look at the third point here. Persecution comes from disturbing the status quo. Persecution comes from the, disturbing the status quo. There are times when authorities will be sanctioned to go after the disciples of Christ because they're Christians, all for the good of society. You know that happens? That definitely happens in many, many places that you've probably not read much about lately. In fact, I don't know how many of you know this, but during the election, there are articles that were released that said anybody that believes in Noah's Ark is a conspiracy theorist. Folks, it's coming. And the question is going to be what we're going to finish with is, are we prepared? 
In fact, what's interesting is with Paul and Silas, these men shifted the narrative to something that had nothing to do with what happened. Don't ever believe the lies that media will tell you about why Christians that really are suffering for, for their faith. I'm not talking about the anomalies of things, you know, things that happen that have nothing to do with their identity with Christ. Somebody's in the wrong for not doing something that they should be doing, that's one thing. But if God says, here's the moral code, and those that oppose the society's version of it, they get in trouble for that, that's the right stance that they should take. You see, these people, they said, these men exceedingly trouble our city and teach customs that are not lawful for us. They didn't care about the prayer meeting until the money was taken away from the fortune telling. Because here's the thing, a lot of Christians will disturb the status quo of society. At least if we're doing it right. If we're doing it right, we will disturb the status quo of society. Mark my words, the Christian school hasn't faced its hardship yet. And hopefully this is still online so I can prove that this was right. In fact, what they said is what they're doing is illegal. Or Paul, when there were multitudes gathered to hear him, they were filled with envy. They didn't like that a lot of people were hearing Paul. They didn't like the attention Paul was getting with the gospel message. The encounter with the demon-possessed girl in Acts 16 was one where Paul, out of annoyance, cast a demon out. It wasn't exclusively a gospel incident. The reason they were cast into prison is because the owner's financial statement was going to go down quite a bit. The bottom line was hurt. They weren't going to make a profit off of fortune-telling anymore. It wasn't necessarily because of Paul's preaching the gospel. If what you do for Christ keeps others from making a profit, you may very well suffer persecution for it. Church, bank on it. At the end of the day, a lot of people prefer possessions over others. What they value themselves as is their status in society. Which is one of the reasons why Christians that want to avoid all conflict and hide away and pretend that no conflict will ever come their way are the biggest cowards in the church. And one day it will come for them. And sadly, those Christians are going to keep quiet when other Christians are legitimately getting persecuted for their faith. That's happened throughout history. So now that we know what persecution is, here's the bottom line, here's the big question. How do we prepare? How do we know that we've prepared well? Number three, persecution prepared. There's a text specifically in Scripture that speaks to this point on persecution, and it's missed by many when talking about persecution. And the difference that it makes in the end and what makes a person able to go through persecution versus those that are not able to. We find that in the parable of the sower. Matthew 13, verses 3 through 9. Here's what it says. Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places, 
where they did not have much earth. And they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched. And because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a good crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, if you know this text, Jesus gives you the interpretation. He doesn't leave us hanging. He tells his disciples what the interpretation of this parable is. Skip down to verse 18. Therefore, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who receives seed by the wayside. But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. He's excited about it. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word. And the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. But he who receives seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. You want to be prepared for persecution? This is the parable you and I need to analyze. There are essentially four responses to the seed that is sown and how they face everything around them. First one is the hard soil. It does not penetrate, just simply dies. More than likely, a harder, unconcerned heart, one that has not been affected with the gospel message, likely. We're saying just pulls the word away. Doesn't take root at all. The gospel message of the kingdom is not evident in this person's life at all. There's also the stony soil. This is a person, and I'm sure you and I have met them, maybe we've been this person. When the gospel comes their way, they are excited, they are thrilled. Let's say their emotions get the best of them. They're very emotional. A very emotional person whose emotions fade as it gets harder. The enthusiasm goes down when the hardships go up. When the good turns to bad, their enthusiasm goes down as well. And they start compromising. When hard times of persecution come, they fall apart. Because all it was built on was emotionalism. There's a reason why I do not believe at all that no matter how much you hype people up, that'll be enough when it comes to persecution. 
no matter how great you feel after you come to church, will that make it possible for you as you have something pointed to your head and say, will you recant right now? Will that help in that moment? Because emotions fade. How do we know this? In every area of our life, we've had highs and lows. In our marriages, we've had highs and lows, have we not? When it came to raising our children, we've had highs and lows, have we not? If we're going to bank off of emotions, those will never pull us through. Because emotions are fickle. When it comes to persecution, they will not be enough. You can't hype yourself up enough to face persecution. The third type of soil is thorny soil. Among the thorns. This is a person who hears the word and lives it out only to have other things start taking priority in their life. You know, I got to take care of the kids. Got to pay the bills. Got all this other stuff I need to worry about. I'll get back to the faith and serving Christ. I'll get back to church later. I'll get back to worshiping with the community that God has placed me in when everything is perfect in my life again. Look, the place where broken people need to come to is church. The the last place they should avoid is church. And yet that's the first response many of us have. You see, the thorny soil is someone whose wealth and possessions sometimes take priority and precedence in their life. And you don't have to be rich to do this. Everybody assumes only rich people prioritize their, their possessions. That's a false statement. Especially when you look at most of America and our quote-unquote poor have iPhones. It's the simple everyday life responsibilities that can take precedence over the Word of God. It doesn't take much. This is the unbalanced person that's not willing to put things in proper order. But the last soil is the one we should strive for. It's the good soil. It's the person who hears and understands what the Word requires, which is why, let me reemphasize this for the hundredth time, you need to be in this Word and read it. And we have resources on our website, Constable's Notes, that will help you in case you're struggling in understanding the passage. You need to understand the Word. Nowhere in Scripture does it say read by itself. Meditate. Paul tells Timothy, study to show yourself approved unto God. What most people in American Christianity have bought into is devotionals. And devotions are not enough. In fact, even David, if you're going to call him a devotional kind of man when you read the Psalms, he said, oh, how I love your law or your precepts. I meditate them all the day long. It's more than a devotion to him. He memorizes it. He places it in his heart. He makes sure he understands who God is. It's not enough just to read, but you got to start there. 
You need to open the book and you need to try to do your best to understand by the power of the Holy Spirit and resources that God has given us. They understand what the Word requires and they bear fruit. That fruit is not up to us to determine how much and how, how fast we produce it. That is determined by the Holy Spirit who works through the Word. Here is how we produce fruit, the Holy Spirit, working through the Word of God. Here's how you don't produce fruit. Neglect the Word of God and assume to produce fruit. Can't make it happen. You can't in and of yourself produce fruit. Which is why the text says that people will produce fruit differently. By the way, they're all on good soil, okay? Just because you don't produce like someone else at the same rate does not mean that you're not following Christ the way you ought to. Just as an encouragement, some of you are always frustrated that you're not doing as much as so-and-so. You work at the pace the Holy Spirit's working on in your life. But you be obedient. You know who you don't want to exemplify? Are the ones in hard soil. Eh, doesn't matter, I already know enough. I was baptized as a little child. I know more than I need to now. I've walked with Christ for 30 years, having opened my Bible more than five times, but I know Him. It's garbage a lot of people buy into today. Look, no worship song can replace the Word of God, the pure, unfiltered Word of God. Do we get excited at times? If we're gleaning from the Word of God, we're understanding some things? Sure. Don't, don't read into what I haven't said as a pastor here. I'm not saying that you don't get excited over what God says in His Word. What I'm saying is don't base it all on your emotions. Because some of the moments in your deepest distress, your darkest hours, that Scripture will come to memory. It'll come up in your mind. And God will use it just at that moment to help you fight that battle. When someone angers you enough that you just want to lash, you remember, oh, the anger, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And you stop before you say a word. Look, I think a lot more people fall into category three than like to admit it. I'll be honest with you. A lot of us get so busy about the things of the Lord, if you will, the ministry, the raising our kids, the taking care of the bills, making sure we have this saved for that project we want to do next. We get so overwhelmed with all of those things that we don't just bask in the glory of God's Word in Christ. We're so carried away by all the regular things that we do every day. What we see clearly spelled out here. That is, each one of us falls into one of these categories. And we may be moving from category to category certain weeks. The categories are not broken up into necessarily all being lost and only one being found, which is the good soil. Don't read what the text doesn't say. I would say the only argument is probably for the first soil, the hard soil. But I know many a believer that can be hardened because I've been there myself. Where the Word of God doesn't mean that much that day. The main point of the parable, as with others, is the state of the heart and its reception to the Word of God. 
Ask yourself, where am I at right now? Which one of these four is where I'm at right now? So here's the conclusion. Are you ready for persecution based on what we've just read here? Have you just flat out dismissed the gospel message? If you have, then you have a hardened heart. You don't even know Christ. So this is completely going to be foreign to you, especially if you're watching online. I pray that God softens your heart and you accept the gospel message. Maybe you're just very emotional as a person. You have highs and lows all the time. And based on how you're feeling, you're wondering what you're feeling closer to God based on a high feeling. Don't gear towards that. That is not a good analysis of your spiritual walk with God because your emotions are fickle. There are many people that walk into church, have sinned against God, have not repented, have worshipped, worshipped, and never repented over sin they committed. And that's blasphemy before God. When you're low and you sink in your faith, your emotions are not going to get you out. Maybe you've just been caught up trying to take care of all the finances and all the things around the house. Want to be a good family man, right? Those of us who are men, we want to take care of our families. You want to be a good mother, you want to take care of the kids. Maybe you've been distracted. Maybe the word just gets choked out, if you will. Maybe you're not prioritizing properly. Hopefully we can all be that good soil that produces fruit and does what God says. Look, here's the encouraging part. We're all going to produce fruit at different levels and at different times. And it's going to take some of us a little longer than others. And your goal is not to compare how much fruit you're producing for God compared to somebody else. You do what God asks you to do from the word of God. And you let God deal with them. The fruit that's determined by God is not for us to determine. Our determination ultimately starts with obedience to what God's word clearly says. You and I need to be in the word of God to know what we ought to obey. The only way you can produce fruit is if you're rooted in the word of God. So that we can rejoice with Paul as we finish with what he says here in Romans chapter 8. The glorious text that everybody quotes, but they don't quote the rest. What shall we say to these things? Verse 31. What shall we then say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. And furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written... For your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, 
We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Believer, you better memorize this text right here. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray.